Welcome to episode 10 of the Suncast Star Trek podcast. Uh, I'm still doing quite well because I'm remembering the episode numbers, which is good. Um, and today, what we're talking about is some of the news coming out of Discovery. Uh, then we're going to launch straight into our topic this week because we have a fantastic guest host in the form of Adam Howard, who is a visual effects supremo uh, from the world of film, television, and of course, Star Trek. Uh, so let's get on with it. As usual, uh, here I am on Clove, and we've got Tiff, hey, uh. and we've got Adam. Hey. <laughs> so yeah, um, let's introduce our, our guest host for this time, which is uh, Mr. Howard himself. Um, you've got a, a little bit of, of experience with with uh, a certain sci-fi franchise. Um, Hundred episodes. Yeah, just uh, just just a little teeny when you get. Um, Hundred episodes of Deep Space Nine. Uh, yeah, something like that. All season four, uh, season five, season seven, next generation. Um, nearly all the Voyager, most of the Day Nine, but with Enterprise. And just act and so, yeah. so, just a tear then. Never seen an episode, you can tell, can't you, real? Never seen it's going to be honest. <laughs> For those of you who aren't watching, we've got the old Long and Prosper hand from, from Adam, who's obviously never seen yeah. an episode of Star Trek, so we have no idea what we're talking oh, to. No. Which is going to be no, great. Um, so yeah, uh, and uh, to be fair, we've looked through your you, you kind of pick your IMDb listing because you have to do that. You know, yeah. research, obviously research, and it's it's a little bit extensive. You have quite a history yeah. of, of of small films that you've done over, over your time. Tiff is the research queen, by the way. I don't know, you'll find that Rita has researched you to high heaven. Um, yes. what about Birdman. Chest. This is just me kind of picking up. I could have picked hundreds. Twilight, Breaking Dawn Parts 1 and 2, because uh, I'm blind watching the wardrobe. Star Wars Episode 3, because Star Wars Episode 3. Flubber. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, I mean, you, you, you've been in that kind of injury for, for a, a long, long time um, and, and worked on kind of a lot of films, and we're going to talk about those as we kind of go into it. Um, you've also worked on Round the Twist, which was. Which I, did. Was, yes, I, did. I just have to kind of go. Like I one. Um, one of the programs at my childhood. Uh, First couple of seasons of that show. I did. Yeah. yeah, amazing, amazing. But and, you know, I'm really fortunate about the working in Star Trek. Um, what we're going to is we usually have a bit quick chat about some news. Um, yeah. Being a Star Trek podcast as we are, um, the, the news time has to be, of course, Discovery uh, and the announcements we've seen this week. Because <laughs> of the, the three candidates. Uh, I'm actually going to come to you. Yeah, and, and, and the latest news. Yes, in regards to Mr. Fuller. Um, yeah. So I'm going to come to Adam first. If I point like this, Adam, it's just because you're on my, my sort of top left. <laughs> you're above me here. Yeah. Um, th- I don't know if you've seen the cast announcements that they've got for Discovery. What are your sort of thoughts on, on, on the three that they've they've cast? Oh, and they've heard him. He's a love guy. He's so good. He's playing. I'm not the guy, um, but you know, he's well thought of. Yeah, he's a kind of experience from the show on Broadway. Uh, I, I, I heard about that um, on a rumor mill like a long time ago. The possibility of Michelle you know, when it was really a great idea. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, you know, you, you're getting somebody who's like a really strong performer, somebody who's got great street credit, cred, an actress, and um, yeah. you know, an incredible role model. And, and I think um, you know, the, rumor, the other rumors that are out there that she's maybe not necessarily the lead character, but she is the captain. And, um, you know, I think she's going to be an amazing asset to the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Michelle Yeoh is just, uh, she's, she's astonishing. And Doug Jones, 
Um, he's done so much work. I mean, he played um, Ape Sapien in um, uh, um, and he's done, he's done a lot of work. I've seen so, so many things. The other guy, Anthony Rapp, I haven't seen um, much of his stuff, but as you say, in the theatrical world, he's, he seems highly regarded, so uh, I think things are good stuff, definitely. What's your experience with him? Just sort of personal friends, or have you worked with him on previous productions? Been around each other, so we've done a couple of conventions here. Like Sandy Hoffman and um, another cushion out in um, California, um, and in Houston, Texas. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a little guy, and that's the thing I've met him in. And he's a great guy, but he's a phenomenal performer. You know, all the stuff that he's done with um, Guillermo del Toro, um, Hans Labyrinth, and yes. it's amazing the number of shows Doug shows up in. You know, but, uh, um, you know he's he's a sick thing. He's usually in put him out, um, but the performance that he gives through that makeup is always crystal. So. And again, yeah. he's going to be amazing at the show, and I'm very big for the show to get somebody like that on the show. Yeah, yeah. no. Really sure. his name come up. Um, a lot of people are picking on because you know he's already made. Um, the last thing sorry, was something in uh, the Fuji Origin. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of him. He played what? Yes, it'll be Mr. He did a lot of character makeup. Yeah. And I believe a discovery he's going to be playing a new aliens that we'll see for the first time. Mentioned his extreme acting prowess is that his um, his body acting is so incredible, and so and so that's an exciting prospect for you know what the alien may be. And uh, yeah. wait and see. No, don't think it's going to be. Yeah. Do you think that they will involve a lot of makeup in that case? Do you think it's going to be something's going to really require? I have no idea. I'm like, I'm no idea. Having oh, it's the yeah, having some flow. I mean, it speaks to the fact that it's going to be a makeup. Uh, like, he he Cool. And so Michelle, you said he's a son of Cassie. Um, the interesting fact is that they've got uh, quite experienced actors, well, they're not kind of new guys coming through. It's that they've got three names, yeah. we'd say, to carry this at the moment. Um, and Michelle, you know, she's captain in the Shenzhou, which is within the series, which kind of gives us the idea of the captain in there that it's going to be really across multiple ships that Discovery is kind of the names, but we're going to see lots of different involved in, in this yeah. kind of series, which will be really different. Yeah. I think it has to be different because of what we've seen before. We've, we've covered quite different avenues hmm. um, with Deep Space Nine, Void of Prize, um, and, and Next Gen. So it has to be something which is a little bit um, with a different sort of focal particular. I know that one of the things that Brian Paul was very adamant about, and he, he said hmm. it today, was that um, the, the world that he created for Discovery, um, at least the initial world that created for Discovery, was um, very honourable to Gene Roddenberry's vision. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're saying which environment and world is something that um, takes part in areas that we've seen before or whether it's something that's just completely new but it goes along the philosophy of Gene was trying to do, then, yeah. you know, again, there, there are lots of surprises in store for this show. Um, I actually interviewed with Brian for the show. And, um, and so I know some things that are happening in the show and I can say any of them. I'm only seen them. <laughs> um, the things that are happening, the things that were being planned were very and. And things that you know, the, the fan of the show um, are going to love. And I, I think the show is going cool. to be a massive hit. Cool. That's all we need yeah. to hear. You know, we did everything now. Yeah. That bit, I think you just made it. Yeah, um, yeah it's. Um, it, it's, it's yeah. There's a lot of people. I can understand in some respects why they put it on to the yeah. CBS or Access. It's going to be like, in a way, Voyager kind of was for, for UPN. Yeah. 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 Um, come on to us because your experience of, of, of caretaker. Yeah. But it's it's interesting. We, you know, we've got that Brian Fuller there that. Today has kind of been one of those revelation days in that respect. Well, he's just kind of there. He kind of helped. I guess he's saying as that executive producer role. Yeah. But, but even today, we know that he's not going to be involved with it at all because of his other commitments. Yeah. Which is, a, is a, do you think that's going to have an effect on it long term? 
<laughs> and who knows? I mean, I, I don't know any of the other players in the show. I, I do know the visual effects supervisor goes and and worked on direct together years and years ago. But um, he's a he's a really good guy. Um, but the the other producers in the show, I don't know. Um, you know, I think you know the, everybody wants the show to see. So yeah. the you know again, we've just got to wait and see. Um, yeah. There's cool. there's so many directions the show could go in, but I. Yeah, the one that no one wants it to go in is that direction, and um, you know the fan base is strong, and the um, the the people who make the shows, whether they're new to Star Trek or old to Star Trek, um, you know they're very yeah. respectful of Star Trek, yeah, and Gene uh, Gene created an incredible concept, and for um, it to have lasted years, this being the 50th anniversary, yeah. it's pretty something that it's still around yeah. and it's still kicking ass just as much always has. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Tetsu, do you, I mean, what sort of thoughts when you saw the, the brothel news today? Well, I was disappointed, um, but I understand, I mean, he's mm. got some map commitments. I mean, American Gods um, is, I mean, that's a full-on book. The, the book is um, astonishing. I've, I read the book, it's best. And to think that he's got to deal with that and Discovery, I, I understood why he had to be. But um, it is a bit disappointing, but I do understand. The fact that he kind of set it up in the first place, it's his vision, as it were, based on Trojan. Um, yeah, he, he wrote the thirteen yeah. story arc in the first two episodes. So. Yeah, so I think that yeah. stands to yeah. show in, in very, very good stead, and I think the narrative will be pretty strong because of that, because of his influence. So. Yeah, I believe that he's kind of helped map out the first. They say he's written the first two episodes, map out five, and I think quite solidly map out sort of as far as I understood. And the rest of the season, he mapped out the yeah. thirteen, but he wrote yeah. two, and um, and so you know, they haven't written the arc, and it's going to be predominantly his story. At, at core, uh, exactly. Yeah, change, but I, I, you know, he, he spent a long time with all powers that be, you know, coming up with that right. So it's, it's, yeah. it's going to be pretty yeah. Cool. yeah I, I think it's like the first season. I still bear Brian's kind of footprints. Uh, I think maybe the big challenge will be will be season two if they call him back in or if, if you know what if they kind of go free with it. I think as I say, has like the producers that he's like he's instilled that ethos he wanted to of that that Gene memory ear. I Yeah. However, we we could talk to him. Maybe he's got some experience on the chance I don't about about you know maybe space nine. <laughs> Quite excited. Um, <laughs> you feel it. Uh, so let's talk and let's um, let's delve into the mind of Adam. Oh, that's <laughs> so. Um, I guess the first question that you kind of ask is, as as a visual effects supervisor, which is what I mean, is a lot of the times that you're looking at, what what does that include then? Not really understand what roles. Um, well, to go to backtrack a bit, before I was a supervisor, I was very positive, and so I was being asked on a computer system, and my result was quite real, positive, anything very very real. You know, they wouldn't. Part of my job was literally seeing a computer all day in a dark room. Not at all. Um, as a supervisor, um, they in in many cases in pre-production when they're even still potentially writing the script, um, and I help the director and the writers work out ways of either optimizing a gag or you know, sometimes the best job that the supervisor does for a film is to not do visual effects. Um, you know, I, I sit with the directors okay. and we work out the best way to do things. And then once we once it's all written up, then we do pre-production and the pre-production stage we we do location scouts and i i work with all the other heads of department like water and stunts and um you know every other special effects um yeah and we we work out how we do every single shot in the movie and that's the month's work of just working out all the production and then we go to the shoot and i'm on the shoot we know that one at a time go and shoot all these shots one at a time and we just take most and it's a it's like a nice small army uh, with and uh 
and when we're on set, it'll effectively be a supervisor and a producer and maybe a dangler and a couple of assistants. Yeah. Uh, so we're fairly small for print on the set. But then after the film wraps, and I always go to a wrap party at the end of the movie, and everything. Oh, so relieved. We're all going on vacation now. We're yeah, uh, starting. And we've been uh, three months on that, putting all the effects together, um, using all the material that we just shot. So the job of supervisor really encompasses the length of the project, um, the production yeah. to the delivery of the film. Next generation. Well, I, when I was a little kid, 
I watched hmm. the original run of Sonic, um, the original series, um, because yeah, I'm old. Um, but I was, I was a kid living in Japan. My, my dad was working in Japan, so my mom and mother and dad and I were all living in Tokyo. And my first introduction to Star Trek was watching it in Japanese. Um, and I spoke in Japanese at the time, so you know, that was my show. But they were all dubbed voices. I remember going back to Australia, and I was like seven years old, and, and since trying to be there, and, and all these voices were different. I was like, that's not what it sounds like. Um, that was actually real. Um, but you know, the next generation came out. I was really excited about it. I, I knew Patrick Stewart from a lot of other shows that he had done uh, with the BBC, okay. and yeah. like Aquarius and all kinds of shows. And he, oh, yeah. he was fantastic in those shows. And I thought it was an inspired bit of casting. And I, I loved the show when it came out. And then when I decided that I wanted to come to the States and try and work, I really had a, a complete pipe dream of working on two shows. I, I had like three pipe dreams. The first two okay. were move to L.A., work on Star Trek The Next Generation, and MacGyver, and then to work at Thailand and work on... So you didn't manage any of those at all, did you? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, through, through a series of you know, very fortunate circumstances, um, within seven months of arriving in L.A., I became lead animator on Star Trek Next Generation. Um, and it's a long story that you know, we won't go into now, but uh, I was... You know, yes, I had the skills to do the job, but I was incredibly lucky. Yeah. I was in the yeah. right place at the right time, and uh, the right people took me under their wing. Um, okay. And then the company that we were doing Star Trek at, a company called Digital Magic, uh, also got MacGyver. And so yes. a few months after you know starting on Star Trek, I was working on MacGyver as well. Um, so that was that was two off the list, and uh, <laughs> and you know Star Trek was incredibly good to me. I, the, my first year in the States, uh, which was the, the very end of season four, beginning of season five okay. of Next Generation. Um, we were nominated twice for the Emmy, and we won both of them on the night. Um, oh, okay. Okay. So within the first year of being here, I'd, I'd won two Emmys, which was ridiculous. Um, and, and you know, then so over the years, I ended up getting nine nominations for the show, and I won four, um, uh, three for Next Gen, um, uh, uh, what were they called? Um, Matter of Time and Conundrum, and then All Good Things, the finalists, and then the performance yep. for the pilot, Caretaker of Voyager. Um, and, and so then, you know, moved on and years later ended up getting the call to go to ILM and I did that job and I did work on Star Wars, so it was good. Yeah. yeah, I suppose we've got to give a mention to that. But yeah. Tiff's also a big fan, a big, oh. big Star Wars fan. Yeah. Um, if you, so I'm going to plug Tiff a little bit. Tiff is a fantastic. I've seen some of your your work, Adam. But Tiff is also equally as amazing an artist. So I do recommend checking out some of her stuff. Well, um, her Star Wars piece is, is stunning. So definitely have a look at that. And any of you listening, please do check out both these guys' oh, stuff because they're both really good. I can't draw a toffee, <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm humbled. Um, but, but what, when we talked about you saying you talked, you worked on the end, sort of end of season four, so we're talking sort of around redemption time, uh, putting on Civil War episodes through season five, six, seven, through to, to all the things. What kind of things would people, when we're watching episodes of, of Next Gen, for example, what kind of things would we kind of go, that's that you were involved quite deeply with that, that shot or, or that Anytime work, for example? Anytime you saw a phaser, I, I animated all of them. Um, whether they okay. were hand-to-hand phases or they were ship-to-ship phases, I, I had animated all of them. And the the thing that happened when I joined the show was that the guy who had been doing the show, who was a, you know, a good friend of mine, and, and sadly a few years later he died um, of okay. cancer, which was brutal. Um, he he was his one thing that he was really good at was that he was incredibly fast, and he could do the shots really really quickly. And I, I looked at the man, but well, 
I'm kind of a purist about imagery, and I, I thought, well, if it's a light, it's a phaser, it's a beam of light. If you've got a beam of light going in front of a face, there should be interactive light and shadows playing on the faces, and mm. obviously a way of doing that at a time, pr- practically. So I, uh, yeah. I said, I posed to the, the guys on the show, um, how about um, I animate that stuff? And they said, that's what, if you can do it at the same time he did it, then go. And so I worked out, I hand-painted brand phases, um, so all the particulate elements inside them changed at the beginning of Season 5. Not dramatically, just a little bit. And then I started doing very subtle like, interactive lighting stuff on the faces, which over the next over that first Season 5, um, first season for me, um, increased a lot. And then we started putting lens flares, like lens flares, I'm so sorry. We started doing that, and uh, <laughs> some, some people uh, little up. You say like to Star Trek fun at the moment, everybody price. <laughs> what we were trying to do was make it look like a real element, and yeah. because they were yeah. in these beautiful old lenses, the lenses did have light artifacts. And so, if a phaser was going to go off and okay. be pointing straight at the lens, it was going. It, w- it was a real thing. It would create that. Yeah. And so we did that, and that's why okay. they came there in the first place. And I'm glad we did it because okay. it changed the look of the show, and it. Um, you got the show, you know, along with all the other incredible work that everybody else was doing, a beautiful miniature work by MHG and Greg Jane and his eyes, um, Tom Ninja, the miniature builder, and, um, you know, Dan Curry, Ron Moore, Gary Hutzel, Rob Lato, David Takamura, um, incredible people who, you know, I had been admiring from Australia, and they were all my, my colleagues. Um, and those guys have gone on. I mean, I, I just saw today that uh, Legato had been record into the next group of 20 um, for the Academy Voting the Visual Effects Oscar for Jungle Book. Um, and wow. I've worked with Rob on Tang and, and Apollo 13, and, and he's just done incredible things ever since Trek. Uh, and so it's been a great group to be part of. Yeah, I, I say maybe as well. It, it, it kind of is, you kind of go through and go, I mean, you, oh, yeah. you talk about kind of seminal films, you've got things they say like, like Titanic and things like that. Um, with, just, with, with Trek, so I, I'm actually interested, I've got a question actually in regards to, there was an episode in season seven, this is one of those geeky things, and I, I've heard that the, there's a there's a phaser fight in, in an episode called Gambit, which was out in a, a park area. And I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you remember the episode. Uh, from what I heard, it was quite a hard episode to put the phaser shots into because it was outside and you couldn't do any sort of squib effects on the rocks. Is this true? Uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I you might you might not remember it. You might not remember the episode. I'm ashamed to say I don't actually remember it. That's fine. <laughs> it's like twenty or thirty. Go. It's, I, remember, I, I read it somewhere. I think it was Newton Lane Amshek's um, excellent that there was an actual phaser fight. Um, I remember it was one of the phaser fights where there were more a lot of elements. Yeah, I mean, it's, one of the issues with phaser fight outside was that you know you're dealing with a light source, and so mm. if you're on a on a particular ship or you're on a uh, cave or you're you know, on an alien surface or wherever you are that's relatively yeah. dark that adds to the believability of the phaser because the yeah. you're, you're in a dark background with a bright light source so you can yeah. really play up the gang yeah. and you can play up the atmospheric lighting and all that kind of stuff um, most of which is being added in post-production yeah. Um, yeah. I mean even a lot of the interactive lighting on, on sets and, and general glowy light that's you know optical flare stuff that would happen in the lenses, that was all animated. Um, the, the thing about a daylight shot is that you're doing... It's like polar bear in a snowstorm. You know, you, how do you show a polar bear in a snowstorm? It's white on white. Yeah. Okay, so you got a yeah. light... And so one, one of the things that we would do, we would artificially darken the shot just a little bit when the phaser came okay. on, because technically what happens to your eyeball is your, your iris adjusts 
for brightness. Yeah. <clears throat> so that the brightest thing becomes brighter, and everything else kind of uh, okay. darker, but it, it is more diminished based on the thing that the the brightest thing to main focus is your eyeball. Yeah. And so okay. to simulate that, we we tie just very slightly darken the backgrounds down, and it allowed them to become a little more present, and and not just get buried into the brightness of the background. That makes a lot of Sorry. sense because um, I'm doing a lot of um, drawings at the moment with light hits on them, and you <laughs> you have to sort of adjust background for the light for the lightsabers. Um, so it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I I do try and do computer art, but I'm I'm a pen and pencil person. So uh, it makes a lot of sense that you would follow that through. Ah. I think I might just like leave you two to carry on, <laughs> and I might just go and just make a brew because uh, I've done it. If I really need to. Fair because um, it's a podcast and no one can see this. You guys can do it. Oh. Wow. Yeah. If, if you've seen Adam's um, Adam's profile on on the media sites, his his profile picture is clearly a, a rather amazing personal porch picture, and uh, and he's just shown to us uh, now. I and it's done it. today. Um, oh, wow. So, That's anyway. so wonderful. So, Probably listening. Another rather amazing drawing that I'm sure we'll see at some point. Yeah, so we're on the wall. And we're on the wall. You guys. Me. I have my BB-8 pictures, my Darth Revan pictures, my Darth Maul originals. So they're all lurking around on the walls. But I haven't got no. pictures at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure. I'm, I think you two need to have a chat. Something that but maybe let me just step into this for a second. One of the things. Oh, go for it. Um, one of the things that I think has been most beneficial to me in my career was being trained traditionally as an artist, yeah. not being trained okay. only on a computer. Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, using like an airbrush as an example, if you give somebody a, a program, whether it's Photoshop or whatever you're going to use, that has an airbrush, then, you know, that those tools have become incredibly flexible over the years, and now with hand the pencil and all these things, you can, you can simulate what a real brush or a pencil really does much more accurately than okay. you used to be able to. Yeah. But when in the days when I was starting or you know when I came to the States and I was training other artists, um, I would say, you know, the airbrush is basically a binary thing. It it, yeah. it, it does airbrush or it doesn't. But yeah. it doesn't give you splatter that you can get by adjusting the nozzle or changing the density of the ink. Yeah. And I said if you really want to be able to use digital tool to its maximum effect, learn how to use the practical tool. Absolutely. Because the practical can do so many things that the digital can't just by default. But if you know yep. what the practical tool can do, you can make the digital tool do it. Oh, absolutely. You have to have a good idea of sort of like, yeah, how it works, how you can use it, how you can manipulate it, um, what effects you can create with that, what you can't, more importantly as well, what yeah. you need to use other tools for. Yeah, uh, just know the limitations. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I, I, a lot of the time, you know, digital is not the deal and end all. Yeah. A lot of a lot of filmmakers want to say, well, we're just going to go CG yeah. by default. <clears throat> and it's not always the right answer. Sometimes no. shooting a miniature is the right way to do it. Um, yeah. When when we did Armageddon, we had a shot in Armageddon of um, the space shuttle landing at NASA, and uh, so the the runway was the actual runway at NASA. The, the space shuttle was a um, I think it was a, I think it was like an eight foot miniature. Yeah. And then yeah. the the real big issue for me was what happened when the wheels touched down on the runway. And yeah. uh, those who've ever watched the space shuttle or any airplane land, there's, there's a huge amount of smoke that rips up off the back lane. Yeah. And we were going to do CG smoke and dust 
time, it was still you know, early days for CG. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, um, and it, it, it just you know, it was possible, but it took an incredibly long time to do. Yeah. And didn't always give you exactly what you wanted. Yeah. And so I had the special effects guys build me a tire, you know, a, a shape that matched the shape of the tire that had hoses inside it that fed smoke into it. And we built a black set and we painted the wheel black and we just pumped smoke out of it and we matched the angles of the wheel rotating. And so the shot that's in the movie has its real smoke. It sailed down and shot at a high frame rate so that it matches the scale of the, the shuttle. Uh, but it's act- the reason it looks good is because it's actually real smoke. And, um, and it, you know, yes, now you can do simulations that are absolutely incredible and look completely yeah. photorealistic. But at the time, we were in a time crunch and we had to do something that was down and dirty, quick and efficient and looked really good. And the best option was to do a miniature. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's less and less so the case now. But, but sometimes still, you know, one of the things that I love about miniatures is that if you have, you know, I, I, I did a logo treatment for Robert Zemeckis um, for his company Image Movers a few years ago, and it went on the front end of um, Castaway. And it's a 1930s like Art Deco train arcing toward the camera, and there's wheat fields moving by in the foreground, and then you realize as the wheat fields lie down that they're making the word Image Movers. And we shot the light pass for the headlight, on motion control stage, um, the guys down at Hunter Gratzner did it, and it was you know a beautiful shoot. And um, John Bruno was directing, and Pat Long was little fake supervising, and I was comping it. And I was putting the elements together, and as I was putting the headlight in, there was this weird little error at the bottom of the frame. And we kept on looking at it, and Zemeckis and I go, what, "What is that? It's just I'm going to have to paint that out." And then I said to him, "You know, look, let's just put it in and just see what it looks like." And when we put it in, we realized that. When we shot the headlights in the smoked-out room, the headlight would travel across the top of the track, and it was a beam that was going full length of the stage. And so all the track that was right down near the camera was in a big curve, and so this little thing would look ripple, a reflection across, and it was a reflection of the beam in the smoke. And wow. never necessarily think to do that as a CG yeah. piece of animation. It was a happy accident. It was just nature in the way it naturally Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, with miniatures, we... We, um, you know, we still use them, and I think you know. Again, it's, it's there are many tools in the tool chest. You use yeah. them. Yeah, I think you it's important saying? to use the. Um, I think it's important to use the miniatures um, because sometimes visual effects can just take over, and they can completely ruin a narrative if there's too much because it just distracts. So sometimes I think that use of miniature is is still massively important. Um, to try and actually get as realistic effect as possible. Well, I, I think you know more more than that. What it what it really boils down to is a piece of advice that I got many years ago from a hero of mine, and we've done. And when invented the optical printer, yeah, he did all the composites on King Kong, Gone with the Wind, Citizen Kane, you know, incredible things where there was no computer controlled repeatable cameras. There was, it was all on a pin block, and he was doing it all manually as a photochemical process. And you look at those composites now, and they're still phenomenal. Some of the stuff at Citizen Kane is still some of the most beautiful stuff ever done. And um, I said to him, if I'm ever going to ask you, uh, ask this question, I'm going to ask you because, you know, you created my job. And I said, what's the one guiding principle that you would recommend for a long career in visual effects? And he, he was English and a little guy and a very gruff voice, but he was a sweetheart of a man. And he goes, oh, that's easy. 
He said, you spend your entire life doing shots that no one notices. And I said, okay, well, why is that? And he said, because, my boy, you only have one purpose in this job, and that's to serve the story. And he said, the second that you do a shot that is so cool that somebody in the audience says, wow, what a cool visual effect, you failed, because yeah. you made it about you and not about the story. Yeah. And he yeah. said, so yeah. be invisible and you'll be around forever. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that happens in movies a lot can happen in movies a lot is mm. you know the production timelines get crunched to very very tight deadlines and um, script don't always take priority and there are many people who have felt over the years that the more the more effects and the more explosions you put into a shot the it'll save anything yeah. and it really doesn't I mean the, the, what we're doing is there to support the story so if you don't have a great story you've got a problem to start off with and the films that are really amazing to work on are the ones that start off with just this incredible story before you start doing anything or shoot anything. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. We were saying, um, we're sort of pulling back towards Star Trek. Sorry. <laughs> my God, my God. I just I say, I just, I could, I could go on for, for an hour. I just, everything. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about, you, you're talking about, um, you, you've done a, sort of every phaser shot in, in sort of season five, six, seven. Was that the same for Deep Space Nine as well? I'll be right. These kind of phaser shots in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, basically you all, were talking- all the weaponry for the series. I for all of the series I designed. We, you know, working with Dan Curry and Ron and yeah. Gary Hansel and all those guys. I I designed and created the the look of how the weaponry happened. Um, one of my one of my favorite stories about that is um, Gary Hassel came running into the room one day and he said, "Okay, so I've got this shot." And it's, it's like this new little ship that we've got. Um, it's going to be firing some cannons out of the front of this shot. It's, it's a big, dramatic shot of the first time you really see this ship. And it comes flying straight at camera and, and past, and it's firing all these photon cannons. And uh, I think they were photon cannons. Oh, my God. It's a long time ago again. Anyway, um, he he said, so, so just make something cool. And I said to him, well, how long have I got? And he goes, like, 20 minutes. So, <laughs> pre-CG days, so everyone was hand-painted. So everyone was one frame at a time, hand-animating. Yeah. And so I, I didn't even know where the things shot out of, because he, he didn't know. We just liked the miniature. And, and so I said, okay, well, how about like here and here and here and here? And, we'll, we'll, and they can come out, and we can make them kind of like photon torpedoes, like spinning a little bit, but like a long tail and kind of yellow. And he goes, um, yeah, that sounds good, that. So I, I painted that, and 20 minutes later, we had the first shot of the Defiant. I just was about to say, was this? Can I? I'm gonna put here, but you, you chain the flipping neck. Um, that shot of the defiant, that shot of the defiant in Deep Space Nine from the search, which I got to be the one you're talking about, um, changed my entire perspective on Deep Space Nine. Uh, that single shot of them are in the phases, which is yeah, a Gatling gun effect. It was a beautiful shot, I and mean, Gary Hutzel designed an incredible motion control shot that just had scale and majesty and drama and power and and you know for a little ship it had i mean there's that there's the line of show being a yeah, little ship i think wolf says it in first contact um but it's um it's an incredibly designed shot and, and it's an incredibly designed ship and we just wanted to you know give it its due and uh, make it look like a really badass War machine. You succeeded on every single level. I watched that video for the first time in about 1995. Yeah, it, yeah. it absolutely blew me away because uh, you can sit there and go, it's just going to fire phases. It's going to go QBD. And that came through and it comes across and it fired that. And I just went, oh my God. Yeah, well, thank you. And, and, you know, yeah. 
one of the real unsung heroes of Star Trek, um, even though he um, he was famous for going on and doing Battlestar Galactica and a bunch of other shows. Uh, Garrett Hutzel, and you know, we lost Gary in the last year, and yeah, it was um, it was brutally hard to lose him because he was an, he was a very dear friend, and you know, we all grew up around each other's families, and I, I knew his kids and. Um, when I went to the memorial service for him, um, uh, actually, no, I, I didn't make it to the memorial service for him, but I, I spoke with his wife. Um, the, the, the hard thing about working on things that happened a long time ago is that people start dying. And, and you, you kind of, you forget that that happens because, you know, we're working in this, this medium that is kind of forever with the people that may not. And uh, losing Gary was a really hard thing, and he, he was a great guy. But he he really was one of the people who was revolutionary in in the Trek world, changing the way battle sequences are shot. And, yeah. and and I was you know very proud to be part of that process with him of changing the way. And I remember saying to him at one point because we we had these explosions that I call like the nine old men, and we had nine big explosions, and and they were all real explosions that had been shot on stage at Paramount. And we would use them anytime a big ship explode. We'd use one of the nine old men. And um, the the thing about those shots, though, was that you, you would have a ship, and then yeah. it'd be an explosion. It'd be a one front thing. And I said to Gary at one point, you know, we've got to make these cool. We gotta, why, don't, why, don't, why don't we just have, like, just, just the first little bit of the ship just breaking apart and then go to the explosion? But we see a bit of, like, destruction of the ship, and then yeah. of the explosion just start doing debris. And so, you know, unfortunately, that added to the workload that the motion control guys had because they were shooting, you know, extra debris passes, and we were doing extra pyro against blue screen. Yeah. But it it really changed the look of the show. And then to Gary's credit, he was the one who went, "Yeah, absolutely, we're going to do that, and we're going to," and he made it all happen. And um, yeah, Defiant was like his really first step in of changing the look of Trek and changing the drama of Trek, and he did it. Yeah, I think I think very much succeeded, um, yeah, and I think sure. you know I, you've got to take some credit for that as well, Adam. Um, you, you definitely coming up with that. Yeah. It did change the look, and I think you know saying what the work that Gary did on Trek as well, it did change it, and it made it a lot more realistic. And I think yeah. I remember back to the explosions as sort of first you know a couple of seasons of, of Next Gen where you know they kind of just have the ship and just mat an explosion over the top of it, for example. Right. And you kind of get to the later seasons where you you know you do see kind of the debris in there, things like the the, the exploding at the beginning of uh, the pilot episode of Deep Space Nine. Right yeah. when they hit by the ball, things like that just just come up. It just comes alive. And, well, and, that, and, that shot yeah. is you know something that sticks in my mind forever because the there's this one big hero shot of the Saratoga just kind of arcing mm. down toward camera, and the whole front of it's ripped off, and you can see all the decks of the ship, and all the decks are on fire, yeah. and it's fire pouring between the decks and off the decks and off the ship. And at the time we did that, there was no auto tracking software in compositing. Um, you know, now you can say, okay, well, I'll put, pick that point of the miniature and track it through the shot. Now apply a piece of pyrotechnic to that, and it will apply the yeah. motion to the pyro and, and stick it to the shot. Yeah. It didn't exist. And yeah. so the only way that we could do that was basically the same way that Linwood Dunn had done King Kong, which was one yeah. on eye tracking. And I, I tracked hundreds of pieces of pyro. pyro. It was real fire elements, some of which were shot on Dan Curry's barbecue. Um, <laughs> and, and, and tracking it into the shot to make it look real. But, you know, then 
you've got to account for the direction of the ship dragging the flames and all that kind of stuff. And so we were adding all of that stuff, and it took a long time. And Caretaker, the the work in Caretaker um, was really hard stuff. And and we did things that we'd never done before, and uh, no one had done before. And uh, it was just really exciting to be able to actually make it happen, which was great. Was, was Caretaker quite a, a, a groundbreaking piece for, in, in regards to visual effects for, for Star Trek, do you think, in that case? Was it, it, it kind of, did you kind of really step up the game for that one? Yeah, if, I mean, if, we, if you it, was, it was a brand new show, and it was, it was also the flagship show for Channel 13. Um, and it, it had to be the best trick that anybody had ever seen. Yeah. And, um, you know, things like the, uh, I can't even remember what it's called now, but the, you know, <laughs> When when Cisco um, is talking with the older kind of priest priestess, and she's got the the box w- with the orb in it. Oh, in Deep Space Nine, yes, Deep Space Nine, rather than Voyager. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that that show was revolutionising things, but Voyager was Voyager was revolutionary on multiple levels. I mean, the female yeah. captain and um, the you know it, it was just. It was a trek that no one had seen before, and so they they wanted to just push every boundary they possibly could. And, they mm. did. Yeah. and did you, from a visual from the from visual effects kind of side of it, did you, what kind of things did you feel that they were that was was really pushing it, say for caretaker for the Voyager pilot, for example? You know, the, the weaponry of the show, the um, weaponry that had a new look to it that didn't feel like, you know, when you design something like that, you you don't want to have somebody look at it and go. Oh, well, that's like that, that episode that was in such and such, which is a whole other area of the timeline. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's got a, you're designing weaponry for um, a brand new race. And so you, you design, you, you know, you throw the rule book out the window and you just kind of make crazy stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and out of the crazy stuff, something solid comes. I'm guessing with Voyager, that was pretty much every week because they were. I say in different, completely different section of the of the galaxy. With yeah, Deep Space yeah. Nine, I guess, and with, with with TNG, you could you could kind of go, well, I, we have the Romulans on TNG, we can just use that kind of effect and work on it and, and develop well, it for Deep Space Nine. TNG was doing the same thing. I mean, TNG mm. was there all over the place all the time, um, location wise. And um, you know, I remember one episode we did of uh, um, this is Deep Space Nine, but uh, an episode called Little Green Men. Yes. And, oh, yeah. Um, and we had a shot of the Ferengi ship blasting out of the top of a warehouse on Earth and flying away. And, you know, that was a, a miniature that was shot of the Ferengi ship and a real building that was shot somewhere in Los Angeles. And, yeah. uh, and then we, we were dealing, we were not dealing with alien worlds, we were dealing with Earth. Yeah. And um, the same thing with in Next Generation, like a fistful of datas. Um, you know, we're on the a western backlot, and they're all yep. like cowboys shooting at each other. So we you know, data's head flying off, and spark animation, and all kinds of weird stuff. But it still had to live within a real, a real environment. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, one of the one of the big episodes, I th- I'm, I'm I'm looking at your IMDb. And I, I think it's one of the you worked on Trials and Tribulations, yes, which I is did. which is thirty years, which is twenty years old this year. This year, yeah. Twenty years, thirty years. 1995, years, uh, yeah, 20, 20 years. 20 years. 20, it's the 50 years. Oh. It's the 30th anniversary yeah, episode. Yeah, 50 yeah. years this year. 20 years. Was that was that as big? Was that a big, a, a huge challenge to work on that? I mean, that was uh, to be a, a quite a seminal episode for one thing, and then okay, to one have of the really interesting things about Trials and Tribulations was that we 
we were also used to seeing the original series hmm. and having having the imagery overall, just the, the full frame image, look pretty bad. Yeah. And we all thought, you know, well, the, the, the show must have you know, been shot on pretty bad stuff. Um, and then they did some research, and like Mike Akuda and a few other people went in, and they they found the original cut negative of um, um, Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah. And we took it to um, CIS uh, in Hollywood, and they threw it up on the film chain, and they they transferred. It. And this film was the most pristine film stock you had ever seen. And we were shooting like 5219 Kodak film stock on okay. the show on Base 9. And, um, and we thought that we were going to degrade our footage <laughs> to match the quality of the original series. Yeah. We actually had to degrade the original series to match the film Whoa. stock on 9. And uh, it turned out Kodak was doing this experimental film stock and they, they had spent a lot of money on making this thing. It was incredibly, like almost zero grain. And they they discontinued after a couple of years, which just happened to be the couple of years that Star Trek was being shot. And um, but one of the things, one of the tests they did was shot from the, the main screen and the bridge, looking back across the bridge with the yeah. mark on the wall. Yeah. And I remember Mike Gooder telling me that they they put it up and they blew up the film, and you could read every line of text. Really? Uh, wow! Across. That's how good quality yeah. the film was that they'd used. The film started we used at the time. Wow. Wow. I mean, what what kind of movies are working on that episode? Do you do you have? I um, mean, it's it being quite a it, I remember one of the biggest ones really. Doing the shot of Cisco and Dax um, playing the multi-tiered chess. Yes. Oh yeah. In, in a mess room, and um, that was particularly hard because we were kind of blending bodies and heads from different shots. Um, but it, you know, it was a challenge. It was fun, and I, yeah. I had left the show at that point and I was doing yeah I think I was doing Titanic at time and um, and Gary called me and he said I want you to come back and do this episode um, so I came back and did a few shots on the show which was so much fun to um, <laughs> but you know the whole concept of it putting the new cast into the old show and having yeah. it was incredible and they did a beautiful set rebuild um, the, the research the you know the art department went to if going back to the original plans and photographs of the original yeah. set and um, and just rebuilding it to make be exactly the same so that we could intercut between the old and the new was pretty yeah. expensive. Yeah. And, um, yeah. wow. and Gary Hutzel did an incredible amount of research on... Um, I remember there's a shot of Kirk sitting in the chair on the bridge and Cisco walks up and hands him the pad and yes. in the background walking down the staircase. And almost more work went into having Dax actually feel like she was walking down that staircase, which was from the original show. She was yeah. new on a blue screen. The staircase was from the original show. Almost more work went into making that work in the background than it did for having Cisco and Turk appear in the foreground. Um, very, very challenging show, and, and you know, it, it did beautifully. I, I was I was stunned when it didn't win the Emmy. Because uh, it, it, it was, uh, I thought it was the best thing that happened. It damn well should have done. It should have done. Damn well should have done. It was, it was just so. Oh, I don't know. It was just. I remember when I first watched it, and I was just like, "How are they doing this? This is incredible. It yeah. was seamless. It was flawless. Phenomenal. Just Phenomenal work. Superb. Yeah. yeah, I saw that it was, it was after your ton of time that you'd, you'd come back and you'd seen you'd done that episode. I know with the later seasons of Space Nine, I think you dropped in and kind of did one or two here and there. Yeah. Um, I'm obviously conscious of time as well. I just want to really kind of um, ask you, with 
Discovery coming up as the new series. Uh, I said earlier when we kind of mentioned this one. What kind of, where do you think it needs to go in terms of, I mean, this is kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff, and I guess we're kind of just fingering the wind and suggesting what could happen. But how do you think it needs to kind of push forward from, a, from that visual effects kind of perspective? Where does it need to expand from things like, from Enterprise, for example, which I know you worked on, um, and, and kind of take Trek to that, potentially to that next level that you guys took it to during Next Generation, you know, I, I don't think visual effects should ever drive it. I think, mm. um, I think the, um, the thing with Discover is that it's going to be driven by story. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. Do you, <laughs> um, it's going to be do you think... Driven by story. Yeah. So the... Um, the thing is, they um, they're going to write great story, and 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 the story is going to dictate how visual effects are done. Again, I I, I said before, you know, I, I know some of the stuff that is being proposed to be done in the show. <sighs> yeah. <And it's, laughs> um, <laughs> but you can't say anything. Around. I know, I know, I know. You, I know you, you would have to. If you told us, you would have to kill us, and it's just yes, not worth it. No, I'm sworn to secrecy. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. But it's it's extremely exciting stuff, and it's extremely challenging stuff, and it's stuff that um, the team that's doing the work is completely capable of, you know, pulling off and making incredible. And, Excellent. Um, and that's what the show is going to be. And I think cool. it's, it's going. It's going. It's going to push new boundaries, but people aren't even going to know that it's pushing new boundaries. Yeah. yeah way it definitely. Cool. Cool. No, excellent. Yeah. Tiff, I know Adam. Um, I'm conscious of time. As I said, is there anything we'd like to you'd like to ask in there before we do? So to say, farewell, Tim, because I'm obviously conscious of time for ourselves as well, because it's now uh, nearly past midnight. There is and absolutely <laughs> so much I would like to ask you, <laughs> 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 but I don't think we've got the time to cover. No, I'm, I'm concerned. What I think we're going to have to do, and, and I hope you're up for this at some time. I think we're going to have to get you back. Um, I think we're going to we're gonna have to just drag you back for a, a second, a second sitting and talk about. Yeah. I think more of your movie work because I know Star we talked Wars. about Trek quite a bit, and, and yeah, we might talk about Star Wars. Yeah, you know, yes. <laughs> um, I know. And, and to be honest, you know, thank you so much for your time yeah. this oh, evening, no, and uh, just for an hour, just for an hour of your time, just to kind of talk over some Trek stuff. It's just, it's just magic, and has, has kind of made my evening. It's just been um, amazing. I have wanted to chat to you for so long. <laughs> I was so gutted when I could do it the other day. I was just like, ah. Oh. So it's, it's been yeah. amazing. Thank you so, so no, much. No, absolutely. Um, no, my pleasure. Thanks. Cool. No, on that note, Adam, we are going to let you go. Um, thank you very much for your time this evening. Um, and right. we will definitely, definitely talk to you soon. Please, people, check out all of Adam's stuff on his social media sites. Look at the work he's done. And, and when you watch an episode of Trek, you know what? He's right in there with everybody else, and they all deserve an absolute massive round of applause for the work they put in. And that will be a, a legacy that is, is going to live on probably for another 50 years at the minimum, I would expect. Adam, thank you very much. We should let you go. Have a great night. Cool. You too. Bye. And there we go. Um, That's Adam's just had to leave us, unfortunately, which due to due to sort of time and things like that. But yeah, yeah, Tiff, we're just going to wrap up, really. I think and kind of say, yeah, we're definitely getting him back (laughs) because that was phenomenal. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I kind of took over at one point, but he's no, 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 no. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. I could have talked to him for. No, I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And um, I, I think we're going to get him back because I think that's been a real. I'm hoping that everybody who's listened to this has had a, has really enjoyed sort of just listening to the kind of stuff, some of the stuff that he's come out with tonight, and just amazing. So, um, on that note, 
I think we'll wrap this one up, I think, because I don't think we can say anything. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'm slightly stunned, to be honest. I'm, yeah, I, I had a moment, as you may have noticed, during that one. Yeah, I'm just going to have to pick myself up and kind of think about this. Um, so, yeah, um, as always, guys, if you've enjoyed this, please do let us know. Check out Adam on uh, Facebook. He might become your friend if you talk to him nicely. Um, he's a great guy, and he had his birthday the other week which was the day after mine, which is another reason why I ended up talking to him. And he's such a great guy, and I really do thank him for coming on today. Um, as always, um, please do check us out, SoundCloud, give us a rating, iTunes. Please do let us know what you thought of the podcast, uh, and continue to read the stuff that we've got on Star Discussed about Discovery, about new series, about anniversaries, about a ton of other stuff. I mean, we didn't even touch kind of first contact and interaction, which I think we need to, because it's, it's, it's 20 years of those guys as well. Um, so... From myself, Clive, thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated every time anybody listens to this. We really do appreciate it. And please give us comments, feedback on what we can do and what you'd like to hear. Oh, yeah. And thank you, Tiff, again, uh, for oh, joining no me, as always. It's been an absolute pleasure, yeah. Cool. And also, guys, as always, guys, uh, we will see you again. Episode 11 next time. This is episode 10. See, if we can get to the end of these, and I can still remember the numbers. Uh, but we will talk to you all very soon. <laughs>